Well, good morning. I thought it would just be really um, a good thing just to share with you a little bit about what's going on in our lives as you've been praying for us this morning and some of you for a lot of this week. Um, on, on Tuesday night of this past week, my younger brother, Jordan, went home to be with Jesus. He'd been in a Christian recovery center for almost uh, two years now, and um, it's called Teen Challenge. He completed the program, and then he continued to live there because it was a supportive community where he could continue to grow in Christ and uh, have that accountability and deep fellowship. And, you know, we are just so grateful to God that he had the best two years of his life these last two years. Um, it was the longest stretch he's ever had of sobriety and being clean, and we're just, you know, just so grateful to have seen him thriving. Uh, every weekend he would go and serve, nearly every weekend he would serve at Ruth and Naomi's, a street mission in downtown Chilliwack, because he just loved the poor and the broken, because that's where he was, and and he got it. And... um he deeply loved Jesus and had just been, he and I would talk one to four times a week would be normal for us. And we would talk about Jesus and what it meant to follow him. And so I'm just, I'm just so incredibly grateful for that relationship that he and I had. And um, he also struggled with significant mental health issues. And I didn't know it, but he had been off his medication for the last two months since beginning of January. And, and he had a serious episode this last week. He had ended up falling off the wagon and starting to use again, which often triggers some of the paranoia and, and, and things. And uh, he was seeking help, but um, uh, didn't quite get everything he needed for help. And he, he ended up taking his own life on Tuesday night. We rest in the promise of the good news of Jesus. And he rested in that good news as well. And so my request is that you just please pray for Teen Challenge, um, the staff and the students there deeply loved Jordan and he loved them and uh, we got to go down on Wednesday and they just shared stories of how Jordan was loving and supporting and helping them grow in Christ I'm just was so blessed by that Uh, but they're struggling and they just need our prayers and support Um, we'll be celebrating Jordan's life here at Summit Drive this was his home church when he he lived with us Um, probably a period of about a year this was his church where he worshipped and came to young adults and uh, we're going to meet here on March 14th at 2 p.m., and you're welcome to join us. No obligation, of course, but if you want to come and celebrate his life with us, we'd love to have you here. Um, my, my family, uh, my mom, you know, we're doing well because we're trusting in God's goodness. But, of course, there's deep grief as well in, in the midst of it all. And so I'm just going to be on lighter duties for the next two weeks until his service. Um, I'll still be doing some things that I need to get done and things that are life-giving and helpful, but I probably won't be taking any extra appointments. And so um, you'll probably have to seek out other pastors over the next couple of weeks if you're looking for someone to chat with. Um, but I just want to thank you so much for your support of Jordan over the years. I know many of you have supported him not only at the level of his community, but also um, some of you are his healthcare supporters as well. I just want to thank you so much for all that you've done for him. And um, I'm just celebrating this morning that there's there's hope beyond the grave, and it's a hope he lived in. And so, interestingly too, I got most or a good chunk of my sermon written by Tuesday afternoon. That almost never happens. Uh, God God knew what needed to happen, and so I came Tuesday after the news and I met with Colton and. I handed him on my manuscript and said, can you take the rest? And so thank you so much, Colton, as well, for just being a support. And this young man has loved me and our family well through this week, and I'm just so grateful for people like him in our midst. So um, let's just open ourselves up to God and all he wants to say and do through this message this week in our hearts. Colton, passing's on to you. Thanks, Dave. 
Let's pray. God, we just come before you and we lift up our pastor Dave and his family. God, be with them. We pray that your Holy Spirit, which is called the Comforter, would comfort them in the midst of this grief. But God, that they would continue to hold on to the hope after the grave, the promise of salvation in you. And so God, I just pray for for him and for his family. And Lord, as we hear from your word, God, we just pray that our hearts would, that our imaginations, everything about us would, would look to you and would seek your face. We pray all this in your name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And if you don't have a Bible, we'll have the stuff come up on the screen as well. But uh, once you got those, say amen. Anyone got them? No. <laughs> okay. Amen. So, who or what do you fear? Like, what dominates your imaginations? What shapes your imaginations? See, we live from the imagination. We live from a set of deeply held beliefs and attitudes that form all of how we function in the world. When philosopher Charles Taylor talks about imaginaries, he talks about those unseen or unnamed assumptions, like things you probably don't even know are there but have sort of shaped your imagination to believe or disbelieve. They answer questions like, do miracles happen? Can a small shepherd boy beat a muscular giant in battle? Can God really forgive me for what I've done? Can my broken heart really be made whole after a life of sin and broken relationships? What are those impossible situations in life that have you hanging your head looking down? What things shape how you answer those questions? Is it logic? Fear? What do we look to when we're faced with those big questions in life? Often we look to what we live for. What we live for shapes our imaginations. Do we live for power? When we're faced with a powerless situation, then what do we do? Do we live for pleasure? When hurt hits us, how do we escape it? See, the David story exposes our, each character's imaginations, what they think will help them achieve victory in whatever task or whatever is coming before them. Only one comes out on top. And why? Only one has a God oriented imagination. While everyone else is looking around them, David is looking up. And so reading the David story, it's not simply about picking out certain character traits that we might want to follow and others that we might want to avoid. Mostly what dwelling on or even dwelling in these stories will do is to help us see God, help us form a God-oriented imagination. It's about learning to notice God, to deal with God and all the ins and outs, all the messiness everyday life. Last week we looked at how as we read biblical narrative that there are crucial details given and we saw that David had beautiful eyes, like eyes that see God. He has a God-dominated imagination as Eugene Peterson so aptly put it. What made the difference about the way David saw the situation and his response and those of Saul and his men, of David's big brothers even, in the valley of Elah when Goliath came against them? We noticed last week how David was called someone after God's own heart. That There was something about his approach to life that was after, that was pursuing, that was directed towards God's heart. So as we dwell on the David story over the next weeks, 
uh, we're going to be looking into what would help us grow into that same sort of God awareness and God dominated imagination. Like what even make, and what makes that even possible? So as we dive into the story, let's see what imagination, what our people in Israel are seeing before David even shows up on the scene. First Samuel 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sukkah in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim, between Sukkah and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley between them. A champion, now that means man of the in-between place, like one who steps out to fight between the battle lines and wins. A champion. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. And there are a few different ways this is translated, but he is huge. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. And then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. And let's skip over to verse 20. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse, his dad, had directed. So David was actually sent by his dad to bring bread and cheese to the battle lines for his brothers and the commanders of the army. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. So David left his things with the keeper of the supplies. He ran to the battle line and he asked his brothers how they were. And as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Philistines saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Fear. Goliath fear is dominating this scene. You notice how many times we, we, we see the name of God come up in this section? See how often? Yeah, not once. No one speaks of God. Goliath actually becomes the point of all reference in the text so far. Eugene Peterson puts it well. When David showed up and joined Saul's encampment in the Valley of Elah, Goliath dominated the scene. The huge giant, twirling his 25-pound spear with the careless ease of a cheerleader twirling her baton, was completely intimidating. His taunts across the valley, teasing and provoking the Israelites, each day made each man a little more of a coward. Goliath, his size, his brutality, his cruelty, centered the world. Goliath was the pole star around which everyone took his bearings. You ever have an experience like that? Right? Something happens or someone walks into the room and because of that person's power or prestige, everyone takes their social cues from them. Some of us have had experience where someone like that walked in and our friends dished us at the lunch table. Maybe it was a bully. Or maybe we're the ones who changed our perspective because we allowed something to dictate what 
we did or thought. Verse 25. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, so what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Here it seems there's a little bit of humanity in David, and we're reminded of it here. David's an ordinary guy with an extraordinary God. By asking for clarification on what's being offered, though David has already heard, he knows what's being offered. His intent is to go and get that reward. It, it, that's made clear. David keeps bringing up the matter, too, as we'll read. Why? I mean, he is, after all, the eighth son. And back in those days, uh, he wouldn't be getting much of an inheritance from his father. He has no real inheritance waiting for him. He's the youngest. He's the smallest. And David himself, is, he's pretty clever. And he has ambition. But it's an ambition marked by a trust in God. Next he says this. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should divide the armies of the living God? The first person, the only person to bring a God-shaped imagination on the scene is David. And David names who this army was, who, who they're supposed to be. They're the armies of the living God. They're enlisted in his army. So why are they not acting like it? But bringing God into the equation, it places this giant in his proper place. Verse 27, they repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? With whom have you left those sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter. And the men answered him as before. And there's a lot of parts of this story, as we'll read, that are really awesome. A God-soaked vision of life doesn't dwell on the negative, false accusations of others. David shrugs off his brother's assumptions and accusations with a short quib, and then he simply moves on. Haven't we all been in a similar situation? Right? Entertaining hurtful words. Perhaps brought upon by something that's causing stress to others around us. Taking their cues from that. Springing from the deep insecurity of others, or maybe it's ourselves. We entertain those words sometimes as if those were really important. They distract us from what's true. But already we see David is secure in what is true. By tuning his ear to the voice of his good shepherd, he knows the difference between true and false words about him. And he just goes on and asks the next person. He's totally undeterred by his brother's hateful words. But look at how this Goliath-dominated imagination influenced David's brothers. Peterson puts it. The same debased imagination that treated Goliath as important treated David as insignificant. Their imaginations were so ruined by Goliath watching that they were incapable of seeing and accepting a simple act of friendship. This is worth pausing over. It offers us a warning. When our imaginations are shaped by our fears or by evil, when God drops out of the picture, we're positioned to begin speaking and acting with the same biting accusing tone as David's brothers. Our vision will be distorted. Peterson gives this worthy conclusion. The moment we permit evil to control our imaginations, to dictate the way we think, and shape our responses, we at the same time become incapable of seeing the good and the true and the beautiful. Right? How does this happen? 
See, God, it seems, simply has no place in the thinking of Saul and his men. Like, no doubt they'd claim God as their God, but was God as their God actually dominating the way they view the world? No. Not a chance. They'd given that over to someone else. And cowardice and a darkened vision of life is the result. See, Saul himself, as we saw last week, he had let his fear of people, of what they thought of him, become more significant than what God thought of him, than fearing God. Even Saul's perspective seems to be totally distracted by Goliath. Here is this tall man, right? Taller than all the others in Israel, head and shoulders. And the king, one would expect, this guy should be going out and fighting Goliath. And so we can see largely how Saul's leadership has turned in on itself. It's no longer about God. Saul's trying to use what he has to reward someone else who will kill Goliath, rather than turning to God and going out in confidence, as he should. And David, by trusting in God, he's going to get what Saul has to offer. In fact, he's going to get Saul's very position one day that Saul holds in Israel. See, when we have a Goliath-dominated vision, we often turn to Goliath equals and lessers to make up for the vision that we lack. But with God, we have something far greater. What are those things in your life that you turn to to find salvation? Maybe it's to escape the dread feelings of loneliness and you turn to pornography or food or a substance to numb the pain and help you make it. Maybe it's the dread feeling of being out of place and so you look for belonging with whoever would have you. Maybe it's the feeling of inadequacy so you use whatever you can get your hands on, credit cards, jobs, vacation experiences, to make you feel like you can measure up. How do we try to use other things around us to secure salvation, to give us a sense of wholeness or meaning in life before trusting in God or coming to Him in prayer in need? So David goes to Saul and he says this, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul replied, you're not able to go against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. Now let's bring up a few pieces that we skipped over last week. David has been in Saul's service. He's been going back and forth between caring for his father's sheep and serving as Saul's armor bearer. Like, so Saul knows who David is. David's already been blessing Saul by playing the harp for him. And, but really now Saul's going to see David's faith in action. Today David, and ultimately God, would be stepping in where Saul failed to step in for his people. And the true king would have victory. For David to be one after God's own heart means that he gave God and God's ideas, God's values, God's ways. He gave those pride of place in his heart. He feared God. He revered God. He believed God. And that's why he didn't have to fear anything else. He saw what God had done for him and his people. And he kept his eyes on that. And what has developed David's God-soaked imagination? David tells us as the story continues. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair or beard. I struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hands of this Philistine. And Saul's response, go, and the Lord be with you. Now David, when he recounts his shepherding, he doesn't speak of his own capabilities, 
But again, it's God-soaked language. It's the Lord who protected him from the paw of the lion and the bear. And the Lord will rescue him from the hand of Goliath. It's actually kind of funny. The word there, that grabbing of the hair, it's actually grabbing by the beard. Not sure if I've ever seen a bear with a beard, but I can imagine a lion's mane. But here the point is, this other surely big bearded thing called Goliath, he too, David, is confident. God will deliver into his hand. Right? It was it was David's everyday work, day in and day out, where he learned to see God. He let God have pride of place in it. He didn't shepherd on his own strength. He recognized that it was God who saved him from the paw of the bear. And it came into every part of his work. Peterson puts it beautifully. In the Bethlehem hills and meadows, tending his father's sheep, David was immersed in the largeness and immediacy of God. He'd experienced God's strength in protecting the sheep in his fights with lions and bears. He had practiced the presence of God so thoroughly that God's word, which he couldn't literally hear, was far more real to him than the lion's roar, which he could hear. He had worshipped the majesty of God so continuously that God's love, which he couldn't see, was far more real to him than the bear's ferocity, which he could see. His praying and singing, his meditation and adoration had shaped an imagination in him that set each sheep and lamb barren lion into something large and vast and robust. God. See, these practices, these ways of training a vision of life, a God-shaped imagination, these are sometimes what we call spiritual disciplines. Whatever you call these practices, there are certain ways of learning to see. These things come into our daily life and they shape us. They shape how we interact in our world. It's coffee together where God isn't an embarrassing, awkward topic that's better avoided, but where we're sharing what we've been reading lately, how we've been praying, how we've been seeing God answering our prayers. It's asking, how are you after we worship together, like today? And when someone says, well, it's actually really hard, we listen and we say, can I pray for you, like now? And you do. It's being ready to acknowledge God's hand in your life and your trust in God when you talk about the news you're weak in your family. David had trained his heart to trust in God with each new situation by trusting him in every situation and we can too we develop a god-dominated view of life as we keep consistently bringing our lives each situation under god's leadership and so saul he gives his blessing for david to go into battle but he tries to outfit him for the task with well his own armor david puts these on says i cannot go in these he said to saul because i am not used to them so he took them off then he took his staff in his hand. He chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in his pouch of his shepherd's bag. And with a sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. See, Saul still hadn't quite grasped David's faith at this point. He tries to outfit David with the best that he has. It's actually kind of odd. David's wearing the king's armor. It's ironic. David is the rightful wearer of the king's armor. Like he's the anointed one and he's acting the king right now. But Saul's armor doesn't fit. And today it wouldn't be kingly David claiming the victory. No, this day's victory is rooted in his confession of God alone. Dave shared with me this week from Jordan's journal how he had written down a profound statement from a sermon that he'd heard. It's, and the, the profound statement was that David is going into battle knowing his inheritance. There's a promise there from God. It was that David would be king. And so David's entering into life in all of its situations aware that he has that promise, that God, the true king, would make him king one day. 
And so he's able to wait and trust in God. He doesn't need armor or size or a sword to trust in God. No sooner does he dump off the clothes than he starts walking down into the valley. He kneels down at the brook, begins sorting through which stones to bring. There's this quiet confidence in David in the face of this giant and his armor bearer. And, and the contrast of the clothing, is it, it, it looks like a deliberate move on the part of the author to draw our attention to what trust in God looks like. See, not only did the author of this book describe Goliath in terms of size, it actually spent a lot of time, as we read, giving detail to his armor and weapons. It details what Goliath trusts in, almost as much as it details what David trusts in. So despite his size, the giant still comes well-equipped. He's got a sharp mind and a sharp and cutting tongue. Let's pick up in verse 41. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield-bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Again, the details of what they come with, right? Goliath with sword and spear and javelin, and David with a name. The Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. He goes on. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered, he will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. A professor of mine once said, It seems that for all of Goliath's wit and sharp mind for war and insult, he was misguided about David, unlike David's stone, which landed quite another thing in Goliath's mind. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Note it gives attention to what David doesn't have in his hand. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. And then David ran over, he stood over him, he took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from its sheath, and after he killed him, he cut off his head with a sword. There's a lot of significant things that happened in this battle, significant for how we understand the story in 1 Samuel. On display in this battle is the warrior the tall and proud warrior who trusts in his armor, and a different kind of small and humble one. As Hannah's song in 1 Samuel chapter 2 says, the tall one in his prideful words is brought low and brought down to size, actually, as David severs his head. David, the humble one, is exalted. Goliath's head is carted off to another city, a city that actually isn't yet inhabited by the Israelites, the city of Jerusalem, where David is once again foreshadowing his role and impact on God's people for years to come, but ultimately how God will exalt David and a descendant of his to bring about that God-dominated imagination to those who fear him, the kind of vision that is after God's own heart. See, David went into battle wearing no worldly armor, but trusting in Yahweh, his Savior and God alone, to protect him and fight the battle 
Though he was the rightful king, he went into battle with a giant armed with something totally unexpected. And our Savior Jesus, he did that. He came not in great armor, but wrapped in swaddling clothes. And later he came, not with a sword or a spear, but with a crown of thorns and a tattered robe, a body whipped and scorned. And through that, he was victorious over sin. And in many ways, the same thing goes for us. Right now, we are broken people. We're not yet delivered from the final stain of sin in our lives. And we too, you see, though like David, we have an inheritance, a royal one, awaiting us as God's children. We cannot claim kingly victory over our sin on our own account, by our own armor. We too, like the shepherd boy David, come to the battle outfitted with no armor of our own, but Christ's alone. Jesus says that those who are found in him, as Isaiah 61.10 says, are clothed with garments of salvation and arrayed in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. As one dressed in white, as Revelations puts, Revelation puts it, whose name is in the book of life. Those people, it says, will walk with God. See, it's Christ who makes that possible, who reconciles us to God, his work on the cross. He is the king who came to defeat a greater evil, a descendant of David, and yet far greater. And as Jordan had wrote in his journal, David was entering into life in all of its situations, aware that he had a promise, that he'd be king one day. And so he's able to wait and trust in God. He didn't have to manufacture anything but trust in God. And if we know who we are and what the promise of eternity holds for us, like both now and not yet, we can enter into life situations. Yeah, we're not armed with quite the same promise that David had, but with a greater promise. Right? One that sees that Christ has brought us into a reconciled relationship with our mighty God and given us a promise of life with him forever. One that can't be taken away. See, stories shape our imagination. And that's why God gives us his word. It's supposed to shape our imaginations, to shape what we believe in, how we live, who we trust in. So as we close today, I'd actually like us to just sit and listen to God's word to hear, to imagine, to ingest God's word to us. We're going to look at Psalm 23. And I don't know if this experience forms at least part of the background of Psalm 23, this time with Goliath, but we can imagine it. The Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. I don't need armor, because I have God with me. He makes me lie down in green pastures. I'm secure with him. He leads me beside quiet waters, like those waters where David selects five smooth stones. And even though I walk through the darkest valley, like the literal valley of Elah, where he's going against Goliath. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Like I protect my sheep, God, you will protect me as well. The world around me won't dominate my imagination, because you do, God. Let's read Psalm 23 together and reflect on it as we close. And the band can come up as well. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, 
and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In John's gospel, we're reminded that Jesus is our great shepherd, and his sheep hear his voice. David has trained his heart to hear his shepherd's voice and to see his shepherd's might. And may we too, may we listen to God and cultivate a God-dominated imagination as we reflect on who we are, what our inheritance is, and in whose righteousness we are clothed. It is Jesus, only Jesus. May we forever love and praise him. Amen.